Father, may that be the cry of our heart, that we trust Jesus more and more, knowing that even when it's hard to trust him, the safest place to be is in his arms. Lord, thank you for that truth. Thank you for the love and the grace and the mercy that you've shown us. Thank you for the fact that when you make a promise, you keep it, that we can trust you because you are trustworthy. And I pray this morning that as we study your word, study this attribute of who you are, Lord, we would just feel the fullness of your wisdom in every aspect of creation, of redemption, and of our own personal lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty, go ahead and have a seat. So several weeks ago, we're going through this, this sermon series, The Attributes of God. We're going to be going through it for just a few more weeks. Uh, we'll end right up about before Christmas, or before Christmas, no, before Easter. Uh, no, not, not the Easter either. What's the next holiday that's coming up? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Well, eh, Hall- well yeah, Halloween. But Thanksgiving, the, the, the real holiday. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we'll, we'll end right before Thanksgiving. But several weeks ago, I preached on the omniscience of God, right? And the omniscience of God is the, the idea that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows the beginning, and he knows the end. He never grows in knowledge. Rather, he possesses all knowledge fully. There are no gaps in his knowledge. He never learns something. He always has known and always will continue to know everything that's going to happen. Then a few weeks before that, I talked about the sovereignty of God, right? That, that God rules over all creation, that there is not even one single molecule on the edge of the universe that is out of God's oversight and control. And then we talked about God being sovereign and also that he is omnipotent, right? That, that God has all power. So he has all knowledge, he has all rule, and he has all power. He is the the source of all power. He isn't and can't be weakened or overcome by anything at all. So the God we claim to serve has those three attributes. He has way more, but for the sake of this argument, he has these three. He's he's all-knowing, he knows everything, he's all-ruling, he rules over every part of the universe, and he is all-powerful. So the question then is, what keeps God from misusing his power? from misusing his rule, from misusing his knowledge. And it's the, the fact of the answer to that question is that he is also all wise. And that's the, the attribute we're going to look at this morning is wisdom. God is wisdom. God is all wise, the wisdom of God. Now, you see, wisdom and knowledge, they're closely connected, but they are different. Knowledge is more about information. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge or the application of knowledge. You can be knowledgeable without being wise, right? And you can be wise without having a ton of knowledge. Pastor and author Roger Ellsworth said it this way, we must not confuse wisdom with knowledge. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is application. Knowledge is comprehending facts. Wisdom is handling life. Knowledge is theoretical. Wisdom is practical. Growing up, I would always hear from my parents. They would say, Josh, you're, you're really, really book smart, but you have no common sense, right? Meaning that I knew a lot of things, but I did not know how to use that knowledge or apply that knowledge to, to life. Also, I was a kid. But anyway, um, and, and so I've, I've said it before that wisdom is important and knowledge is important. Knowledge is knowing that a, a tomato is a fruit, right? But wisdom is not putting in a fruit salad. That, that's the kind of idea, right? That, that wisdom and knowledge are, are clo- closely linked, but they're also different. And here's a good way to apply wisdom at work. 
wisdom and knowledge at work. Knowledge is knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing whether or not you should say it, right? So, so wisdom and knowledge, though closely related, are different. And here's the thing, that God has infinite and perfect knowledge, and he has infinite and perfect wisdom. That means that he knows all the information and also makes the perfect application of that knowledge at all times. All of his choices are after the greatest and highest end, using the most perfect means. God knows all the possible outcomes of every single situation, even situations that haven't happened. Every circumstance, he knows the right choice to make, and he always makes the best decision. Job chapter 12, verse 13, it puts it this way. Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are his. So here Job says that wisdom belongs to God. All wisdom, all perfect wisdom and might are God's alone. There is not one, there is no one in all of creation that is wiser than our God. He is the source and the fount of all wisdom. He always deals with the best use of knowledge for the highest purpose. So then you may be asking, okay, Josh, what is the highest purpose? What is the highest goal that God is always moving toward with, with this infinite knowledge and this infinite wisdom? Simply put, the, the highest goal and the greatest end is God's glory. God is always in pursuit of his own glory. We're going to talk in depth about God's glory in a few weeks, but today we need to see that God's use of his wisdom, the use of his knowledge, his strength, his sovereignty, is always serves the purpose of his glory. Whatever God does, his ultimate goal is his glory. That's why Paul can write in the scripture that we read earlier, Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. So glory is the end goal for all that God does. His glory, God's glory is always the ultimate good. And his attributes are how he gets there. But what about wisdom? How did God take his infinite knowledge and apply it so that we can get a glimpse of his beauty and glory? Well, this morning we're going to look at three areas of God's wisdom on display. We're going to see God's wisdom in creation. We're going to see God's wisdom in redemption, and we're also going to see God's wisdom in the lives of his children. But first, let's look at God's wisdom in creation. Psalm 19.1 says this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. When it comes to God's wisdom in creation, to those of us who believe in God, it's, it's really apparent that all this need to be needed to be designed by an intelligent designer. There is no way that the order, beauty, and complexity of our universe could have arised accidentally. I was watching a video earlier this week about a Christian that had a Christian mathematician. His name is John Lennox. He's a really he's Scottish, so he sounds smart and he is smart. So those two things going together really, <laughs> really work. Anyway, he's a super smart guy, and we would all benefit from listening to him. But he was talking about math, well, as mathematicians do, and and he was saying this. He's saying that that math shouldn't work. Like when you look at Math, it shouldn't work. Math is so precise. It's so well-balanced. It's so beautiful that if it was an accident, it shouldn't work. 
If all this world and our minds were just an accident instead of, instead of the order that we see in math, we would see chaos and mayhem. But rather, in math, we see order and beauty. Last week, I talked about the fact that we as humans like to measure and quantify things, right? Math and science is the way that we understand the world around us. Well, math and science is how we measure and quantify things. But according to Linux, math shouldn't work. It's not an accident that math works. It's not an accident that these calculations actually add up. And you may be sitting there going, why, why are you harping on math and science on a sermon about God's wisdom? Because it's God's wisdom that makes math work. It's God's wisdom that makes science work. It absolutely blows me away that God's wisdom in creation makes it so that we can comprehend anything about the creation around us. That with his knowledge and wisdom, God created a universe that can be measured, that can be quantified, that can be understood. In fact, Einstein once said, the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. That's not too far away from what Paul wrote to the Romans many years before that when he said, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. That's Romans one twenty. God's infinite wisdom, to bring him the most glory and honor, he made a universe that we could understand and we could see the beauty in his creation. Let's not forget that modern science didn't arise until around 1600. And so years after Paul wrote this, even before the scientific method, Paul was saying that God's wisdom in creation is readily apparent. Here's the truth. Science and faith aren't at odds or only at odds when they're forced to be at odds with each other. Many of the early scientists, in fact, some of the biggest proponents of science were committed to Christians. They, they had a desire to want to understand the universe that God created. It wasn't until relatively recently, at the turn of the 20th century or so, that the shift occurred where more scientists became anti-religious than they were religious. And in the scientific agenda, it was to disprove who God is rather than glorify him. And I've thought about this a lot this week as I've been listening to podcasts and thinking through it. But that is really a ploy of the devil. Right to try to confuse science and to to say that that this isn't God's creation, rather it's an accident or it doesn't make sense to God or we have the God of the gaps. Right, it's trying to rob God of His glory. If you go way back, not way back, a while back, there was a chemist and a microbiologist. His name was Louis Pasteur. This is how we can drink milk. Um, he he has a bit of he says this. He says a bit of science distances one from God but much science draws one near to him. So he's saying that if you just have a little bit of information, you go, oh, well, the, God didn't do this. There's, there's rational reasons why these things work. But he says the more that you dive into science, the more that you look at the, the, the biology of the human body, the more that you look at the universe around you and you see this order and complexity, the more it draws you near to God. And I know that I'm talking a lot about science here, but if it weren't for God's wisdom in design of the universe, then much of the universe wouldn't make sense. So let's talk about the amazing wisdom of God's creation. Uh, how many of you have heard of what's called the Goldilocks zone? Have you heard about the Goldilocks zone? 
Okay. This is, it's also called the habitable zone. And, and you know the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, right? Uh, Goldilocks needed everything to be just right, right? And my bed is too soft. This bed is too hard. I need it to be just right, right? My port, that porridge is too cold. This one's too hot. I need the one that's just right. When we talk about the Goldilocks zone, this is, this is um, talking about universe and space, okay? And it's, what the Goldilocks zone is, is it's the planet's distance from a star with the right temperatures that would allow for water to remain a liquid form. Okay? So, you following me? So it's the distance of a planet from a star that would allow water to maintain on the planet and be in a liquid form. If it's too close to the star, then the water is going to boil up and go away. If it's too far from the star, then the water would stay frozen. But just the right distance from the star, the water remains liquid. Earth is in the Goldilocks zone. We're in the just right part of our solar system that allows our planet to have liquid water, which allows our planet to flourish, which provides ecosystems, rainstorms, it provides life on the planet. Yet it's not just the Goldilocks zone that we're in, it's the fact that, that our planet is tilted on just the right axis, moving at the right speed that allows for life. Any closer to the sun and we would all be burned up. Any further away from the sun and we would all freeze. We are in a fine-tuned area that is perfect for life. I was watching um, a scientist answer a question earlier yesterday, I think it was. And he's not a Christian, but they were talking about there, there is a planet, the closest planet to us that is in the Goldilocks zone is actually locked in rotation, which means that it doesn't move, which means that it doesn't have the water, all the water is frozen on it. So it's in the Goldilocks zone, but it does not have all the proper aspects that would create life. So Earth seems to be pretty unique in the fact that we have, we're in the Goldilocks zone and we have life on our planet. Um, we can talk about other stuff later, but, but the reality is, is that the fine-tuning of the universe, the fine-tuning of our planet, is something that stumps many scientists on why we actually exist, why the universe actually exists. We cannot answer that question, why do we exist? Well, we can. God created it. He made it so. He wanted our world and our universe to exist, so he spoke it into existence, and we exist. God's design and creation is wondrous. It's beautiful, and it speaks of his glory. Psalm 104, verse, or verse 24 says this, How countless are your works, Lord! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. I love what John uh, Calvin, one, of, one theologian, said about this. He said, The whole world is a theater for the display of God's, of divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. Nothing in the universe just happened. Everything in all of creation and in the world around us was created with purpose and through the wisdom of God. Weather, weather patterns, seasons, day and night cycles, all done with wisdom and purpose. Divine wisdom that displays the glory of God. And as amazing as God's wisdom is in creation, God's wisdom in redemption is even more amazing. The greatest display of God's wisdom is found in the plan and the power of salvation. God's plan of salvation was in motion before the foundations of the earth were laid. Before the universe was spoken into existence, God already had the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption in place. Because of God's omniscience, his all-knowing, his divine knowledge, he, he's outside of space and time, he knew 
that when he created the earth and when he placed humanity on earth, they would fail. He knew that when he, when presented with the opportunity, man would rebel against him. When sin enticed Adam and Eve in that garden, he knew that they would take of that fruit and that they would eat. And in taking of that fruit and eating, humanity, God's grand creation, would be separated from him. There would be a chasm between man and God that would have to be crossed. After the first man and woman rebelled against God, the heart of, the, of rebellion was passed on to each and every descend, descendant. The first person born outside of the garden committed murder. This is the stain of the original sin that we all inherit from Adam. Every person born of man and woman is born with the stain of original sin. We are all blemished. We are all stained. So God was going to have to fix this issue. He was going to have to rectify it. And in fixing the problem, he was going to have to bring about the most glory to himself. So God made a promise to Adam and Eve in that garden that he was going to fix the issue of sin. He was going to conquer the issue of death, that he would send one who would restore man's relationship with God. And in God's wisdom, he always chose a path that was impossible for man to do alone. It was impossible for man to do alone so that it would point to the glory of God. He wanted people to see that he gets all the glory in all situations when it comes to redemption. God chose a man named Abraham where the line of the Savior would be coming. This man and his wife were very old. And Sarah, his wife, was barren. But God made a promise to them that they would have a child. And that this would be the child of the promise. And at the ripe old age of 190, God gave Abraham and Sarah their one and only son. An impossible birth that could only have been done by an almighty God. And then through the generations, God's divine wisdom was continuously at work. And we see it at work in the Exodus event. Abraham's descendants were in Egypt, but God, and they were enslaved in Egypt, but God made a way for them to be fruitful and multiply. And this upset the Pharaoh, the one ruling over them. He thought that they were multiplying too much. So he pressed in them even more. And guess what happened? More babies were happening. So he made it a law that all the Hebrew children that were born are going to need to be killed. But God made a provision for them, and he saved those children from death. And one of those little ones who was sentenced to death ended up being, being raised in Pharaoh's house. His name was Moses. Moses was then raised up to lead God's people out of slavery, out from under the thumb of oppression of Pharaoh through the supernatural power of God. Plagues and infestations were sent by God, and ultimately the firstborn of all creatures in Egypt were wiped out, but God saved his people. And after leaving Egypt, God gave Moses the law that he wanted his people to live by. This law set the standard for obedience to God. This is how God's people were going to live, and God demanded perfection under the law. But he knew that they weren't going to be perfect, so what did he do? He provided a sacrificial system that would cleanse them of all their sins when they needed to be cleansed. And violation of that law would lead to God's wrath on his people, but he would continue to provide a way for them to be cleansed from their sin. No one lived under the law perfectly. God then supernaturally led his people into a promised land, the land that he promised to Abraham. They were able to conquer parts of that land, but not by their own strength, 
but because God gave them victory. However, there wasn't unity in the land, so God raised up a young shepherd boy. This young shepherd boy would be king over his people. He slew a giant. He united the people. He was admired by God's people, but he wasn't the savior that God promised. David was a foreshadow of the savior that was to come. After David's rule, God's people, the people of Israel turned against God. They started to worship false gods, so God sent them prophets. And these prophets would go talking on God's behalf, and, and they spoke about the fact that, that this Savior is going to come, but they also said that if you guys don't turn away from this, you're going to be oppressed even further. These prophets spoke about a Savior that would come in the Spirit of God, that he would heal the blind, that he would make the sick well. And these prophecies are found in, in places like Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty from the captives and freedom from the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day that our Lord God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. Over 300 of these prophecies about this Messiah are found in the Old Testament. And I can tell you in the wisdom of God, Jesus fulfilled all of them. There's a number up on your screen. This is what a mathematician calculated would be the probability of Jesus filling just eight prophecies. He said, if we take 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas, they would cover the state two feet deep. Now, if we take one of those silver dollars and we mark an X on it, and then we throw it in and we mix up all the silver dollars in Texas and we blindfold a man and tell him that he needs to go around and he needs to bend over and he can pick up one of those silver dollars. And if he picks up one of those silver dollars, that is the likelihood that has an X on it. That is the likelihood of Jesus filling just eight prophecies in the Old Testament. That's a big number. That's one with 17 zeros after it. I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know what the number is, but it's a lot. But that's the same probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. And guess what? He fulfilled over 300 of them. The story of redemption has God's power, knowledge, and ultimately his wisdom on full display. Only a wise God could have designed the plan of redemption. Jesus was born of a virgin, meaning that he didn't have the stain of original sin that is passed on from Adam through the male. He was born blameless, spotless, perfect. He was born under the law. He was born to the people that the law was given. And though everyone had broken the law, he didn't fail. All had failed before him, all the heroes of the faith, Abraham, Moses, and David. But yet Jesus kept that law perfectly. He had no sin, no disobedience, perfect submission to the Father in word and in deed, submission to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now here's where human wisdom and divine wisdom separate. Those outside of the faith think that Jesus dying to cover the sins of man is ridiculous. Paul even says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is what he says. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we 
preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God's wisdom in redemption, his wisdom in salvation doesn't make sense. We would, what would make sense to, to most of humanity would be that we would be forgiven based on what we do, how good we are, how many good deeds we do, how many times we go to church, how many times we have the Lord's Supper, whatever it is, we, we want to do it based on how good we are. In fact, every religion is based upon this understanding that if you are good in this world, you will be blessed in the next whether it's reincarnation or you come back as a where you come back as a higher status because you were good in the previous life or you, or you get to some heaven-like state if you're good according to the standards of this world but in the wisdom of God and ultimately his glory if it, we could earn it it would not glorify him if our obedience got us to to good status with him it would not bring him glory at all so God in his divine wisdom made it to where forgiveness can never be something that I obtain or something that I gain. Rather, forgiveness is freely given through the grace of God. That's what brings God the most glory. The fact that we have all sinned against an infinite, holy, and perfect God demands the greatest sacrifice. And the fact that we can have forgiveness through the blood of Jesus is wisdom for God, but it's foolishness for man. The greatest sacrifice is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. God made flesh to, that came to rescue us, to rescue his people from their own destruction. And then to even further boggle the mind of the wise on earth, Jesus didn't stay dead. In fact, he did something amazing. He rose again. The father was pleased with Jesus' sacrifice. He was pleased with his obedience. So Jesus was raised from the dead. And according to the wisdom of the world, this shouldn't happen. People don't come back to life after they die. Once they're dead, they stay dead. But according to the wisdom of God, Jesus didn't stay dead. Instead, he rose again to bring about a newness of life. That all those who believe can now be saved from the destruction that they deserve. The righteous and perfect life of Jesus lived will be granted to those who believe Romans 10 9 and 10 says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation this is the great exchange the wisdom of God Paul writes about in 2nd Corinthians 5 21 he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in the wisdom of redemption. Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved bore the penalty of sin and death that we earned. And what does he do? He grants us his righteous life grants us the beauty of redemption in salvation. This is the great wisdom of God working out his plans and purposes for his greatest glory that his enemies would become sons and daughters, that those who are dead in their sins and trespasses will be made alive in Christ. That is the glory of God. That is the wisdom in his redemption, his unmatched wisdom. He, he is worthy of all praise. 
God's wisdom always points to God's glory, and how much more could he be glorified than to save sinners out of their wretched state? God's glory is demonstrated in the life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And God offers to his creation salvation for all those who believe, to those who call on the name of the Lord. And for those who call on the name of the Lord, the beauty is wisdom doesn't stop there. God also offers his wisdom to those who are his sons and daughters. He utilizes his wisdom for his sons and daughters. And we call this providence, wisdom and providence. Providence is a big word, but here's what it means. The governing power of God that oversees his creation and works out his plans for it. In God's wisdom, he oversees your life. He knows where you were born. He knows where you live. He knows what happens to you in your life. And he uses all of that to bring the most glory to himself. One of the struggles many people have when suffering is that it occurs in this world. It happens to all of us. The suffering happens to everyone. How do we deal with sickness, death, other trials? For those of us in Christ, we trust in God's providence. We trust in his wisdom. Did you know that there is not one ounce of suffering not one circumstance, not one trial that you go through that if you belong to Jesus isn't for your good and for God's glory. That's why Paul can write in Romans eight twenty eight and 29, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the first, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Notice again that in God's wisdom, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And what is good for us? What is the good that everything is working towards? That we become more like Jesus. That we be conformed to the image of the Son. That through our trials, through the fire, through the circumstances that in our life, that we come out on the other side, not smelling like smoke, but looking like Jesus. One of the worst experiences that ever happened to me happened when I was 11 years old. And it's when my parents got a divorce. I was 11 years old and I knew about God, but I def definitely didn't know him. As a family, we were uh, what, what, whatever we called priesters, right? We would go to church on Christmas and Easter. That was about the extent of it. And when my parents split, it was really hard on me. On me. I, I had a lot of anger towards my dad. And the anger grew when my mom moved us from our home state to North Texas. So now not only did my father leave, but now I moved to a new state with no friends. I was a new kid in town, in a new town. I didn't know anybody. I was in eighth grade, so I was awkward, right? I was isolated and I was alone. However, God knew what he was doing. It was in that new school that I was invited to a church by a youth leader. And through that interaction, attending that church, I came to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus. And as a sidebar, I also met the woman who would become my wife. God took the worst situation in my life and turned it over for my good. In fact, I often look back at where I've been just to see God's hand 
to see his wisdom in his providence of my life. We see this type of wisdom in biblical figures as well, right? Probably most apparently in the life of the guy named Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was a young boy who was hated by his brothers. They wanted to murder him because they hated him so much. But instead, in God's providence, they ended up just selling him into slavery. He was removed from his home and sold to a a man named Potiphar. After he was in Potiphar's house for a little while, Potiphar's wife really, really, really liked the way he looked, and she tried to seduce Joseph. Joseph resisted, but then she falsely accused him of sleeping with her. He's then put into prison. And while in prison, Joseph deciphers one of Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh sees the value in Joseph and employs him as an overseer in Egypt. Through this position, Joseph saves Egypt and the surrounding area from famine, including his family, the family that wanted him dead, the family that sold him into slavery. Through God's divine wisdom, Joseph brought about salvation to his people. And Joseph gets to confront his brothers later in the story. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says this, You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God in his wisdom and providence saved many people through the evil of others. God can make a straight lick with crooked sticks. And all God really has to work with is crooked sticks. So praise him that he can do that. Listen, God's wisdom assures that God's plan will always be accomplished, even when we don't like it and we don't understand it. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to trust in and believe that God has the wisdom, the knowledge, and the power to overcome anything that we face. So if you're sitting here today, I believe that it's no accident. I believe that in God's providence, you have been brought here either to hear the message of the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins so that you could have a relationship with God, or to be encouraged that regardless of the situation that you're facing, the situation that you're going through, God hasn't abandoned you. You may not know what good God is working out, but I can assure you that God is working it out. And so if you fall into that category of a a believer, I want you to know that we also have access to God's divine wisdom. And this is my final point, that there is wisdom for the saints. Wisdom should be the pursuit of all believers. God has not left us alone in any capacity. We primarily get access to God's wisdom through his word. That means that we have to be in his word to access the wisdom of the Lord. Being a follower of Jesus means that we should be steeped in the wisdom of God. Psalm 111 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instruction have good insight. His praise endures forever. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is a right view of who he is. Fear of the Lord is a right understanding of how he operates. If we don't know and we can't see who God is and how he operates, then we will never gain divine wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the Lord has been communicated to us through his word and through the person and work of Jesus. Remember, God is the only place where true wisdom lies. He is the source of all wisdom. So the only way to gain wisdom is if God bestows it upon us. And God freely gives this gift of wisdom to his children. James 1.5 says this, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, 
He should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given. As much as the Bible has answers for life, it doesn't hold all the answers to every situation. Now, before you throw me from the pulpit, just this is what I mean. I mean that it doesn't tell you if you should take this job or that job. It doesn't tell you if you should buy that car or stick with the one that you have. It doesn't tell you if you how you should be generous, right, with what God gives you. It doesn't tell you what school you should attend after you graduate. However, the scriptures and God's divine wisdom do have principles for answering those questions. And the primary question that we need to answer when seeking an answer to those types of questions where it's not clear in scripture that God says, yes, you should take that job, is to ask this question. How will this decision that I'm trying to make glorify God? How will this decision glorify God? If this is the prism through which we look to find the answers to those questions and we ask God for wisdom, we will make the right decision. For example, if you came to me and you said, Josh, I have this job offer and I, I should, I'm trying to figure out if I should take it. This would be the wisdom I would offer. First question I would ask, offer is, is this position being offered going to hinder your relationship with God? Because a hindered relationship with God does not glorify God. The second question I would ask you is, is this job going to hinder your relationship with your family? Because a neglected family does not glorify God. The third question I would ask you is, is this going to affect your regular worship time with other believers? Because neglecting the church body does not glorify God. If the answer is yes to any of those questions, I don't think it would be a wise decision to take that position. And this is the question that we can ask. These are the kinds of questions that we can ask in every situation where we don't have an exact and clear answer in Scripture. Is this choice that I'm presented with the decision that I'm going to make, going to strengthen or hinder my relationship with God, with my family, or with my church? How is what I want to do going to glorify God? As followers of Jesus, we have access to the one who created the universe in wisdom, and so we can ask him for wisdom. We can ask him for insight, but he has already laid the wisdom out for us also in his word. So there are guiding principles in there. The one who offers salvation in wisdom is beautiful. The one through who wisdom works all things for the good of those who love him. We should sit at his feet and ask for discernment and wisdom in the choices that we have to make. Wouldn't it be wise of us to submit our lives to the one who knows what he's doing at all times? Another aspect of wisdom for us as followers of Jesus is the reality that it is God's wise plan to proclaim his word. We should be the greatest advocates for the good news of Jesus. We should tell everyone about God's wisdom in creation, in redemption, and in our lives. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus should be our default state. So I implore you, I plead with you, let's live in the wisdom of God. When we need it, wisdom, let's ask it. Ask for it. When we have the opportunity to speak about God's wisdom, let's speak about God's wisdom. It glorifies God when we trust in his wisdom. So let's live in the wisdom of God because it is good for us. Let's continue to run to him for all the wisdom that we need to say, to live the life that he has called us to live. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your grace. 
your love, your compassion, and your wisdom. Thank you, Lord, that we can see the wisdom in your creation. We can see the wisdom in your salvation. And Lord, we can feel the wisdom in our lives. Thank you that you work all things together for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Lord, thank you that we are never alone. We are never neglected. That everything in our lives, from the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, from the first breath we take as a newborn to the last breath we breathe on our deathbed, we know that it is your providence that you lead our lives, that you guide our lives, that you use every situation not to make much of us, Lord, but to make much of you. Help us to be beacons of your glory. Help us to shine brightly from the love that we have for you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.